Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. You know, I could summarize this rental car story with, uh, if you're thinking of renting a car in August, book now. Now. Or just, you know, take public transit or Uber or borrow a car or buy a car or something. Uh, it's trending over $100 a day, rental car fees for August. And that's not for, you know, I'm, I'm renting a Land Rover or something like that. That's just for your average kind of uh-huh. semi-dumpy, mid-sized uh, rental car. Boy, a lot of people are going to be shocked. I know I would be because you don't really factor that into, like, the major expense of your trip usually. I don't anyway. Oh, yeah. They give plenty of examples here of people who are spending more for their rental car for two days than the flight that got them. Wow. Which is shocking. And well, you know, if maybe you've... maybe take mass transit. You know, maybe just uh, you decide, okay, I'm going to take an Uber and then jump on the local uh, rail, light rail thing. I might yeah, I'm, do that. I'm doing a little vacation travel, and I've just I've done the math, and I'm just going to Uber everywhere I go. It'll be a lot less expensive oh, than yeah. a rental car. Heck yeah! yeah. Plus, then you're not uh, parking or anything. If you didn't follow this during the uh, pandemic, the rental car companies, many of them sold off their fleets. That was the only revenue they had. So they figured, well, we got to keep the uh, doors open. We got to keep the uh, the motor running, so to speak. So we're we're going to sell off a bunch of our cars because we don't need them. Little did they know that when the economy and travel bounced back, it would be nearly impossible to find vehicles for reasonable amounts of money for the reasons of the the chip shortage and supply interruptions and the rest of it. So it's kind of a uh, a double, triple whammy that's led us to this point. But rental cars, brutal. Keep it in mind. So the world's strongest man competition is going on in Sacramento, California. It ends on uh, the 20th, Father's Day. I wish I had tickets and could go, but it's a limited crowd because of COVID. Uh Currently, two Americans lead, so that's uh, exciting. Yes, USA. Uh, we'll compete in a whole bunch of different contests, including, including the train pole, the pickaxe hold, and the Atlas Stones <laughs> over five grueling days. The pickaxe hold, is that you have to hold it straight out yes. for as long as you can? 60-pound axe, you have to hold it straight out. Oh, uh, I uh, can't. <laughs> nobody, nobody made a minute, even among these guys. Nobody made it a minute. That's the- incredible. <laughs> Qualifying day one was the loading medley. Loading heavy things, I guess. The squat lift and the deadlift. You gotta have descriptions of these. The loading I, I, medley. Have, what the hell is that? I'll have a little more here in a second. On day two, Fingles fingers and the train pull. Then on day three, the overhead medley, pickaxe holding the stone off. <laughs> Titans turntable on the final day, which is a new event. I'll tell you about all this here in just a second. If at the end of this you tell us you made up all of these events, yeah, no I kidding. won't be shocked. Yeah. This is the first time ever for Titan's Turntable. Now, if you don't know anything about old Sacramento, which I do know something about having lived near it for so many years, it, uh, one of the, the anchors of old Sacramento is the best train museum you've ever been to in your life. And they do have a giant turntable, the way, uh, they used to turn trains around. Maybe if you've been to San Francisco, you've seen the cable car turn around on that. Well, you have to push an antique locomotive around on the turntable a full 180 degrees. <laughs> Again, I can't. <laughs> and uh, I guess it's danged heavy. So there yeah. you go. Wow. Uh, Fingles Fingers. <laughs> this is funny. I'm actually watching this right now. <laughs> the turn in the turntable? 
No, the uh, the Fingal's Fingers. Fingal's Fingers is returning the competition. This event was named after the mythological Gaelic hunter warrior Fingal, written about in the 18th century. Uh, athletes need to lift a series of large pipes and drive each over a fulcrum. Oh, I've seen this. Yeah, so picture a large metal pole, about 500 pounds, laying on the ground, and at one end is attached to like a hinge. Your job is to to push the pole upright and push it over to cool. the other direction. Good one. No, uh, uh, I can't. With ever increasing <laughs> weights as you do more. Yeah. What if I <laughs> judges? I can't do this. I, I can't do this. <laughs> I will say I'm that not, uh, I'm not strong enough. Back when I used to watch the uh, World's Strongest Man competition on ESPN, the Five or whichever one it was, yeah. I liked how they did all the weights in stone. They, they yes. seem to have adjusted now towards pounds, which, again, makes yeah. it more easily yeah. understandable. Yeah. But Clearly. <laughs> On the second qualifying day, they had the train pole in which athletes race 20 meters while pulling a train car that weighs 80 tons. Which is pretty uh, amazing. Excuse me, Judge. Judge. judge can I get your me, attention? I, I can't do this. I can't. I can't. It's too heavy. <laughs> I can't move it. <laughs> Can we take some of the stuff out of that car? <laughs> just, I just stand there. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, Jack Armstrong of the United States has failed to even begin the event. <laughs> um, one of the favorites dropped out with a groin injury on day one. Oh, but that wasn't good. I bet that wasn't good. Uh, that'll put a hitch in your get along. Uh, I'm sure. Trying yeah. to pull a train and all of a sudden your groin goes, ah! Spring? Gives out on you. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, they all big. They wear that big belt to keep their guts from spilling out. That's the point of the big belt, isn't it? It's more for their back, a, but yeah. yeah, I think it's back support actually. Oh, okay. Says the guy who can't even start an event. <laughs> Michael, don't we have that? Didn't we have what was that tape you used to play whenever we talk about an injury? I broke six ribs. No, we got the, well, the we got the stretching thing. <laughs> we the got stre- that. Oh, that's right. Stretch snap. It was labeled. They should they should have done this. That would have been a good promotional thing to have an average person like local disc jockey Jack Armstrong try any of these <laughs> events and like fail to do anything. Like you can't even lift up the thing to try to tip it over. The big rock you got to carry somewhere can't even get it off the ground. Can't budge the train. I can't do any of the things at all. Let alone you know. Well. I don't. I don't feel like the fail case of an average Joe attempting these events is, oh, look, he couldn't do it. It's death. <laughs> People will die if they try to do these things. Oh, yeah, their hearts will just explode. Oof. Yeah. You got to get a young, a young jock. Atlas Stone rolls on your foot. Oh, jeez. Snap, crackle, pop. Fantastic. Yikes. And they, these guys almost never look like um, somebody that you would see and say, oh, but that guy's the strongest man in the world. They almost never look like that. Well, that's because they don't look like muscle men. They look like farmers, big, mm-hmm. strong farmers. I think a lot of them, looking at some of the pictures, a lot of them, if you saw them in clothes, you'd just think, oh, that's the, the fat guy that works over in the cubicle. Yeah. No, he's the yeah. strongest man in the world. He lifts up all the cubicles, <laughs> rearranges them. Yeah. you need a tr- you, Like your train won't start? You can't get your train started? He'll pull it for you. And as a matter of fact, if your train's pointing the wrong direction, he can turn it around and get it pointing the other direction. Exactly. Who else is going to help you with that? Nobody. Why'd you back the train into the driveway, honey? <laughs> now what am I going to do? If your ultra marathoner buddy's doing that, no. No. No, you need somebody yeah. to get your train pointed the right direction. Skinny little weasels. You got a beer keg? You need it you, here? You need it way up there? <laughs> Four stories up, not a stairway to be found? No. Here's your guy. <laughs> hey, honey. The steel pole on a fulcrum's laying to the right. It's supposed to be laying to the left. 
And it's 500 pounds. I really need this axe held straight out for a full minute. (laughs) Who is going to help me with this? I will. (laughs) Actually, you know, I was going to do a mock Scandinavian accent, but the Americans are leading the way. Do we have names? Let's give credit where it's due, by golly. Well, these these should be household names. These are the world's strongest men. Currently, the leaders are Brian Shaw of the United States and Terry Mitchell of the United States. Way to go, fellas. In third place, J.F. Karen of Canada. Boo! I believe the guy who plays the mountain from the Game of Thrones actually competes in these things on occasion as well. God, this is a great name. The guy in fourth place from Georgia, part of the old Soviet Republic, Konstantin Janaishka. Now, that's a strongest man name right there. God bless you. Some guy that comes down out of the mountain. Just let me turn train around. That's the kind of guy that you are. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Came across this in The Guardian. I have a feeling one of our loyal listeners sent it to us, and I thank you, though I don't recall who sent it. I see this headline, food injustice has deep roots. Let's start with America's apple pie. What? I thought, food food injustice? injustice? Now I'm going to stick it in an oven and then chop it apart and ingest it. So that's unjust to the food, certainly. But I have a feeling that's not what they mean by food injustice. So I dive into this article by Raj. two pieces of pie, I only got one. That's my (laughs) food injustice. No, that's not what they mean either. Oh, easy. Well, okay. So Raj Patel's the writer. This is not the Onion. This is not the Babylon Bee. This is the Guardian, which is one of your more popular websites on Earth. Resting on gingham cloth, a sugar-crusted apple pie cools on the windowsill of a Midwestern farmhouse. Nothing could be more American, officially American. And they mentioned the Department of Defense once, for some reason, featured the pie in an online collection of American symbols along Uncle Sam in Cowboys. Not that American, not that apples, rather, are particularly American. Apples were first domesticated in Central Asia, et cetera, et cetera. Apples Hence travel the to Fuji apple, probably, right? Durr, yes, hmm. clearly. Yeah. Oh, so listen, here's where he gets into his point. Which apple apples, do you buy usually if you go to the store? Because there's a lot uh, of apples at the grocery store I go. There's a tremendous number of choices. I feel like I there can't are too many apples. Raw apples. Yeah, I can't eat raw apples, so oh, okay. I don't buy apples at all. Okay. Granny no, Smith. Just bring Which Granny Smith? Yeah, the green ones. I like yeah. Pink Lady. Pink Lady is the name of an apple? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a fine apple. Delicacy. You can only get that in very small windows. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I'll keep an eye on. I like the the really red, like... Red delicious? The reddest of red apples. I don't know what it's called. I base red it, communist apples. Base it on a view. But there are way too many apple choices at my grocery store. Narrow it down. <laughs> or just it fits in, in with your too many websites theory. The government ought to designate 12. <laughs> or put them in a big container where we can't see them and you just give me one at random. I'll be fine. Right, The apple of the day. Hey, there you go. I like that. How about that? So anyway, here, here's where he starts to get into his main point. Apples traveled to the Western Hemisphere with Spanish columnists and colonists in the 1500s in what used to be called the Columbian Exchange, but is now better understood as a vast and ongoing genocide of indigenous people. Okay. You know, you realize those indigenous people wiped out other indigenous people when they crossed over the hill wherever they were. 
But, shut up, inconvenient. Not that the recipe for apple pie is uniquely American. It's a variant on the English pumpkin recipe. By the time the English... You know what? I just uh, realized how we should present uh, this. we got to have, like, pleasant, upbeat music until (laughs) my tone of voice changes. Michael, do you think we could pull that off on the fly? Sir, you're about to tell me because somebody else was making a pie with a different fruit for a while, and then they started making it with apples, that that's wrong somehow? (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. You're not nearly woke enough. (laughs) By the time the English colonized the New World, apple trees became markers of civilization, which is to say, property. Uh, Blah, blah, blah. Johnny, Johnny Appleseed, we know that story. He planted apples across the frontier which symbolized the U.S. expansion and the colonization and the... No, you're supposed to I, but change my tone of voice. No, you don't oh, get the premise at all. I was going to hit the big dramatic thing. Oh, okay. These markers of colonized property on the frontiers of U.S. expansion where the trees stood as symbols that indigenous communities had been extirpated. Oh, no. <laughs> What's extirpated mean? I'm going to have to uh, flip through the dictionary here. I hear my community has been extirpated, and I don't know if that means we're all going to get $10,000 or our heads chopped off. I assume it doesn't mean they were put in retirement communities with heated pools. It's not a good thing. Okay. Not that the sugar on the crust is uniquely American. Sugar cane was first brought. Where's the cheerful music, Michael? What is it? What is it you don't get about this? There we go. Sugarcane was first brought to the U.S. by Jesuits in 1751. But most U.S. sugar remained an import until the Haitian Revolution, when enslaved workers seized the French colonies. Okay, all right, but what, so... Okay. Within 50 years, the U.S. produced a quarter of the world's sugar cane. And New Orleans had become a concomitant hub of the slave trade. <laughs> After emancipation, the economics of sugar shifted. The American Civil War pushed the frontier of sugar westward. Hawaii sugar plantations grew. When the Philippines was a U.S. colony between 1898 and 1946, Filipino workers were exempted from the Asiatic bar zones to work in U.S. sugar plantations. Okay, so they didn't let people from the Philippines work in the sugar plantations, and I'm not supposed to eat an apple pie? Or they made them or something, I I don't know. But what's the ultimate point of this? I'm just supposed There's to feel, no friggin' point. Am I just supposed to feel bad about apple pie? <laughs> yes. Yes. Because every component of it has in its history evil. Evil and exploitation. They even go on to... Note, one more time, Michael. Note that the gingham cloth on which our apple pie rests is uniquely American. Or I'm sorry, not that it... Columbus recorded cotton being used and worn during his first voyage by his indigenous hosts. The gingham pattern likely originated in Southeast Asia, blah, blah, blah. But as Sven Beckert's Empire of Cotton tells, this war for capitalism enslaved and committed acts of genocide against millions of indigenous peoples in North America and millions of Africans, blah, blah, blah. So because of the history of this, these various goods, the apple trade 350 years ago, you're supposed to view the apple pie as quite literally, again, the headline, Ah, uh, as a symbol of food injustice. All right. 
Aren't God, these people that, are tiresome and yeah, nuts? Yeah, I'd say. Does it mention anywhere how delicious apple pie is? Because that uh, that plays a role. It's deliciousness. Yeah. How um, people of all races uh, want it, want it now. They're thinking of having a slice right now because we're talking about it. Some big thing is going to come along. I'm not looking forward to it. Some big thing, a world war, a pandemic that makes this one look like nothing, a Great Depression, something. Something's going to come along that wipes out all this silliness where we don't have time to write long papers and read them and worry about apple pie and where it came from. That's going to happen. It's the history of the world. It'll be a Schrodinger's incident. It will be both a terrible curse and a wonderful blessing in some ways, but mostly a curse. Yeah, because we got all this time and safety and money to stare in our own navels and think about this crap right now. We should be yeah. we should be happy that we've got the, uh, the 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 freedom to do so. So little to worry about that we can. Jeez, most human beings throughout human history have not been able to spend time on this crap. No kidding. You're trying to keep your kids alive and you alive. So, if you could get a slice of apple pie, warm, a la mode, for $100, would you go for that deal right now? I mean, if somebody could have it in the next five minutes. Whose apple pie is it, though? The apple pie varies so much. Just, I'm assuming it's an excellent apple pie. Then, yes. $100. See, no, yes. right now. Done. Absolutely. <laughs> Somebody's going to show up at the so door bad. with pie. Sorry, sorry. The whole injustice thing, I'm trying, but uh, I want pie. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Here's Armstrong and Getty. Well, what a pleasure this is to talk to Bill Bratton. Bill was the commissioner of the Boston Police Department in the 90s, commissioner of the New York City Police Department, chief of Los Angeles Police as well, and his new book is perhaps the perfect book for our times, The Profession, A Memoir of Community, Race, and the Arc of Policing in America. Bill Bratton. Bill, how are you, sir? Doing very well. It's uh, great to be talking to you on the West Coast. I had seven great years there at the LAPD, so it's uh, always nice to reconnect. Awesome. Um, so I noticed the other day how crime is climbing the charts like a hit record in terms of a topic, a political topic. Seventy-five percent of Americans believe crime is worse today than it was a year ago. And for their own local area where they live, a majority, 54 percent of people say crime is worse than it was a year ago. After decades of crime going down, it's going up, and people's perception of it also. Uh, well, first of all, do you agree with that, and what's to be done? certainly agree with it. What I'm surprised about that it's not 100% for both categories. That uh, What had happened that uh, beginning in the 90s, we began a crime reversal turnaround that uh, for 30 years America was getting safer. There were certainly spots that were not, but New York City, my home city, Homicides down 90%, overall crime 80%, overall crime in America down 40%. Many of the cities that you broadcast into uh, were doing pretty well over that 25, 30-year period of time. But last couple of years, it's uh, uh, turned around dramatically. What's different this time is how fast it's happened. And people didn't expect that we were focused on the coronavirus. And now that the virus is subsiding, this new virus is moving to center stage. And it's going to be as difficult as the coronavirus to deal with. Well, there's a hot video making the rounds on social media yesterday out of San Francisco because they have decriminalized crime in San Francisco. You had a a guy clearing off the shelves at a Walgreens into a trash bag, getting on his bike and riding out the door without anybody doing anything about it. I don't know if you saw that. 
did not see that, but it's just uh, one of a slew of videos in the sense of the lawlessness that our politicians have created in state after state, city after city, where basically prosecutors won't prosecute for shoplifting. So police are not going to make arrests for it. Store owners are beside themselves. And so uh, how can you have a society where there's not punishment for wrongdoing, uh, whether it's minor, like shoplifting, but in the sense of minor shoplifting, if you own a store, it's not minor to you. Uh, and then it just encourages more egregious behavior. That character guaranteed he'll be back in a week with a bigger shopping bag. And uh, because nothing's going to happen to him. What do you think led to the election, especially on the West Coast, of some of these far-left uh, DAs, uh, Chesso Bodine and, and, and his sort? Um, is it just that crime had gotten so low, people started to think that there was no need to be tough on crime? Well, the irony of it, in terms of one of the uh, tools used to get crime down, had been arrests, etc., uh, enforcement of quality of life crime after the 70s and 80s, we paid no attention to it. Then in the 90s, we began to. And there was a concern that uh, uh, too many people had gone to jail. In California, you had three strikes in your out, and a lot of people went to jail for life for a third uh, seemingly minor crime. So there was this sense that, well, crime was down. Let's try some alternatives. Unfortunately, the criminal justice reform movement is moving too fast uh, with some well-intended ideas that basically in practicality and reality are just not working out. Relative to your DAs, George Soros' Open Society has been funding the election of progressive DAs around the country. You've got a number of them certainly in California. I actually think what's going to happen, most of them were elected during times of relatively low crime, and they were going to put their ideas into a public that had become somewhat complacent. If we have a couple more years like this past year, you're going to see return to the 90s where the public's going to rise up and say, we've had enough. Let's get back to some law and order. Yeah, I read your uh, piece in the New York Times over the weekend. Pretty cool. You got featured in the New York Times book review where they ask uh, the authors all the questions. I really enjoyed that. And actually, I've started reading that 1939 that you recommended as one of your favorite books. But you also yeah, talked to... Uh, great, great, great book, The uh, Rise of uh, Nazi Germany. And it went up to the war, uh, World War II. Yeah, I'm loving it so far. But you also mentioned the book Broken Windows and the influence it had on you. What, what, describe that for anybody who doesn't know what that theory is about. Broken Windows is a theory articulated by uh, George Kelling, great friend and mentor, recently passed, and Jim Wilson passed a number of years ago. Uh, that I'm probably one of the principal uh, implementers of, practitioners of, and adherence to. Broken windows uh, uh, basically is the idea that if you don't take care of small things like small crimes on the street, that you create an atmosphere of increased lawlessness. For example, the shoplifting you just talked about. If you don't deal with that, that guy's going to come back and just keep coming back. You've got to stop it. It's like a child. If you don't correct behavior in that child, that child's going to get out of control. You don't weed your garden. The garden is going to get out of control and basically destroy even the strongest tree. So we practice that, but the challenge is policing is to do it in an appropriate degree. It's like a doctor treating you for an illness. You don't want to be over-treated. And there's a lot of attacks on broken windows now because we felt it was unfairly impactful on minority neighborhoods where so much of the crime and disorder occur, unfortunately. And so I'm a great believer in it. It's community policing. The essence of community policing is partnership with the community to identify what is it the community wants the police to address and how do we address it together. And what's the goal? Prevention. 
And so community policing in broken windows are one and the same thing. When the community calls you to come in and deal with the, the drunk on the corner, the gang on the corner, the barbecue that's gone out of control, the prostitute, that's broken windows. That's fixing those windows that are creating fear in a neighborhood. Which leads us uh, brilliantly into the next uh, phase of the conversation with Bill Bratton. His book is The Profession, a memoir of community race and the arc of policing in America. Where do we start to heal the distrust and an out-and-out dislike between much of urban black America and our nation's police departments? It can be done. Uh, one of the reasons I went to New York, excuse me, to Los Angeles, a primary reason was I believe that in that city that had one of the worst racial situations between police and black community in the nation, a police force that had literally been at war with this black community for 50 years, that the issue of police and race are entwined. You can't separate the two. You're never going to solve the race problem until you solve the issue of police dealing with race issues. And so in L.A., I purposely went there with the belief that uh, if we could fix the problem there, or at least ameliorate it significantly, uh, there would be hope for the rest of the country. And we did it. Uh, by 2009, after seven years, crime was down dramatically. We increased the size of the police force, increased minority representation. And the race issues in the city, uh, that city did not have a significant uh, uh, race racial disturbance from 2002 to the George Floyd event, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, so there had been a growth of trust between the black community and the LAPD. LA Times editorialized when I left the city in 2009, after we finished implementing the federal consent decree, that finally a corner had been turned on race relations in Los Angeles. That was quite an accolade. So it can be done, but it requires a lot of hard work. And uh, I write about this in the book. There was a community activist, Sweet Alice, down in Watts. And when I was leaving, she said to, to me, Chief, you know why we like you so much? And I said, no, sweet Alice, why is that? She says, because you see us. You really see us. Uh, and what she was saying was that uh, to basically solve problems, you have to see each other and see each other's perspective about problems. It can be done. It's a lot of hard work. You need patience. Uh, but it can be done. I know I only got about a minute left, but a, a constant refrain from the left is, we have too many people behind bars, build schools, not prisons. I feel like we need to have as many people behind bars as are committing crimes. So that's the correct number. But do we have too many people in jail? We, for a period of time, did put too many people in jail. There's a lot of people who went to jail for drug offenses. My own state, New York, Rockefeller gun laws, Rockefeller laws, uh, California, three strikes, you know. A lot of people could be uh, treated for narcotics instead of being in jail. Uh, a lot of people could also, who had committed those broken windows, minor crimes, be sent to alternative types of uh, rehabilitation rather than prison. So did we over-incarcerate? We did. A lesson learned. But you're correct that uh, a lot of people have to be in jail. In New York State, 80% of the people in state prison are there for violent crime. So this over-incarceration myth, you don't go to jail for fear evasion or shoplifting in New York. You go to jail for violent crime, and even then it's hard to get you in jail or prison sometimes. So it's a, it's a hashtag that's been driving a lot of public policy and a lot of sentiment, uh, but it was based on some reality, particularly back in the 90s. The book is The Profession, a memoir of community race and the arc of policing in America. Bill Bratton, Chief, hey, it's great to speak with you. Thanks for the time. Good luck with the book. Nice talk. Good luck with the draw out there, guys. Thank you. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, 
I don't want anybody in jail who doesn't need to be in jail. Absolutely. Uh, right. Hardly a worse thing could happen when you're, when you lean libertarian than have somebody behind bars that doesn't belong there. But it's kind of interesting that we had the lowest crime rate in U.S. history at the time that we, uh, were, were over jailing people. Um, I don't want to over jail people, but, uh, crime was real low. Right, absolutely. Well, and, and this gets back to the Joe Getty uh, principle of societies veering between the guardrails and never realizing when they have it right in the sweet spot. When you feel like we're over-incarcerating people, look, there's no crime. The the urge is to listen to people who want to go way to the other side. And and they are the loudest, most persuasive voices, and those who say, "Look, let's let's move a little carefully, let's tweak it a little bit, let's be careful what we do." They're just not nearly as exciting, yeah. and so it's just really difficult. We're constantly oversteering as a society. Plus, you create a new generation every generation, and the new generation grows up without crime, and they don't understand what's the big deal because they didn't right. they and, didn't they and, didn't live in a time where you, people get whapped on the head walking down the street. And plus the, the lefty pleas of compassion and healing and the rest of it really appeal to the young heart. Uh, you know, as, as Churchill said, if you're 20 and not a liberal, you have no heart. Um, I thought his stuff on uh, Sweet Alice and You See Us was just a great point and how, you know, the cops have to be in the communities, the communities have to trust the cops, and there's a lot of healing that has to take place, and it's a lot of work. And, you know, I'd also point out that if you defund the police, you're going to cut training, and you're going to cut uh, initiatives like that. Armstrong and Getty. Talk 650 KSTE. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Apple. Biggest company in the world, richest company in the world, a lot of times, uh, does a lot of their business in China. That's a lot of how they ended up being the richest company in the world. And now that we all realize China's the enemy of the United States, how's that all going to work out and how did it start in the first place? So the New York Times, in their daily podcast, they're talking to their tech expert about this whole topic. And they got into a number of questions. A new president assumes power, Xi Jinping. And he has a very different style than his predecessor's. And from that day on, the relationship between Apple and China fundamentally changed. How so? Well, I can actually just start with literally the first week of the presidency. So he assumes power on March 14th, 2013. And the very next day, Apple was under attack. China Central Television, which was the main government broadcaster, aired a report criticizing Apple. And basically they were saying that Apple doesn't issue long enough warranties for its products. The implication was that Apple was ripping off Chinese consumers. And very quickly, there was this coordinated criticism of the company across Chinese society. The Chinese state-owned newspapers were calling Apple a quote-unquote scoundrel. Chinese celebrities were all criticizing the company on social media. And it was really clear that this was a sign on, you know, just the second day of Xi Jinping's administration that the Chinese government was taking a different tact with Apple. That is wild. When you have an authoritarian government, you can do that, obviously. You're the president, and two days in, you can say, okay, celebrities, newspapers, everybody, Apple's bad. 
Apple's bad. Get the word out. Wow. How does that work? They got movie stars, I guess. So you're some movie star. You're some movie stud. You're lounging by your pool, sipping some commie lemonade, enjoying the company of some nice commie babes. All of a sudden, the phone rings at your agent. Darling, darling, I need you to do something for me. Stop tweeting from your iPhone. Oh, wait, no, it's China. We don't have Twitter. Stop posting from your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you got to come out against Apple. I like Apple. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I know. You got to come out. So that played into China having the leverage that they were looking for over Apple. Clip 18. And a big reason why China was changing its approach was because China could. China suddenly had a lot more leverage and it had a lot more economic power in part because of the investment from Apple and other Western companies. You know, by 2013, China was the world's number two economy. And that is a very different place than it was in 2001. And it meant that Xi Jinping had more power and more ability to get his way. 2001 notable timeline, because that's when a lot of these uh, agreements with American companies started to take, take form. And then uh, how Apple responded to this. Apple trying to save face in one of its fastest growing markets. That's for sure, Shabazz. Within several weeks, Tim Cook took a really unusual step. Right now, an unexpected apology this morning from Apple to the Chinese people. He issued an open letter and he apologized. Tim Cook saying, quote, we recognize that we have much to learn about operating and communicating in China. And said that Apple had, quote, incomparable respect for China and that Apple had a lot to learn about operating in the country. A a humbler Apple, if that's possible here. And it was a real sign that the dynamics of this relationship had fundamentally changed. Apple Apple trying to save face and one of... No, I... Sorry about that. That was a miss. Misclick. Um, wow. Well, first of all, I don't think you could get away with that right now if Apple had to do that. They did that before we all decided that China was an enemy. But so the, the, the power completely shifted there, as you could see. Apple had all the power against China. Then all of a sudden, China had all the power against Apple. Hey, you want to continue to be, uh, to do your business here and be as powerful as you are? Well, here's, here's what you, how you're going to do it. Yeah. And having read a bit about this lately, Apple made so many bets that were dependent on operating in China. They So much of their business model was China only. I mean, it would only work in China. The idea of yanking out of China and continuing on is just, it's a farce. It, it's too much would have to change. So they're in a terrible position right now. Yeah, and I know I've got another clip where they talk about there's no plan B, and that probably gets to what you're just saying here. I do want to hear that. What is their plan B? How are they going to deal going forward? Because the world has changed, and they have to react to it somehow. Pretty quickly, there were these conversations inside of Apple about the dilemma that they faced in China. And specifically, there was this former Apple employee who was a senior advisor in China. And he told me that early on, he realized the predicament Apple was in, and he tried to get the company's leadership to do something about it. And so he was able to get an audience with some of Tim Cook's top deputies and make the case that Apple had basically no plan B to China. And that really left the company vulnerable to the whims of the government. But ultimately, nothing really changed at Apple. And that was in part because there was really no other country that could support the type of manufacturing that Apple now required. And there was certainly no consumer market that could make up for the lost sales if Apple had to leave China. Well, I might have to dump my Apple stock. That that's a that's a serious conundrum Apple has. Oh yeah. When has the most valuable company in the world ever been in such a situation? For years it was General Motors. For many many years, like most of my life, General Motors was the most valuable company in the world. 
Um, but they were never in a situation like this where they were they were at the the whims of a foreign nation as to whether or not they could make cars. Right, right. All of a sudden, Detroit goes communist. Never happened. Yeah, I uh, I am really grateful I'm not Tim Cook, although Tim, I think I would probably enjoy his income. Tim Cook got the job because he was the guy in Apple that suggested and led the way toward, hey, here's how we make our model work. We build stuff in China. It's the big market. We can sell iPhones to and we can make them so cheap there. So he's, you know, he's all about that. That's how he ended up running the place after Steve Jobs left. So, again, as you just heard there in the report, they don't have a plan B. Well, there probably isn't a plan B. Can we go to a different country with a billion people where they have slave labor? No, you can't. Yeah, um, not only not only incredibly cheap labor at the time, but a really educated workforce where necessary. Great system of highways and the rest of it. I mean, there are plenty of third world places where people work for peanuts, but they don't have the other infrastructural stuff China has. I just read where the number of Americans who see China as our primary enemy has doubled since last year. That might double again next year. Yeah, ah, Apple's got a problem. It Apple's got a problem. And it should, yeah. Apple's got a problem. Armstrong and Getty.